TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, I notice you're looking a little dusty there, so maybe the rumors are true. Have you been helping the Klingons build an outpost on Pluto? Why? Of course not, Chris. I would. I don't understand what you mean. I. That's. I, I, maybe we should talk about something else. Okay, yeah, I just, you know, we picked up a faint atmosphere around Pluto and a lot of activity out there. And just, uh, you know, I mean, it's a great place to build a military outpost, so. I mean, I, I've heard that Pluto is nice this time of year. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's the perfect season out yes, there. Absolutely. It really is. It's a, maybe a little bit warmer than it has been here in my studio the past few days. So, <laughs> All right. Yes, everyone, we are going to be talking about Ceasefire, which is the 15th episode of season two as we continue our Star Trek Enterprise 20th anniversary rewatch. And uh, there are no Klingons involved, but it does seem like the Andorians might be up to something similar. And here is a very quick rundown of the story. When a decades-old territorial conflict between the Vulcans and Andorians resurfaces, Captain Archer is called upon to mediate. But by whom? As Archer unravels the details... He finds conflict and deception not only between the two sides, but within them. Seeing the situation as an opportunity to prove that humans are ready to join a much larger community, Archer brings together Vulcans and Andorians and takes one more step towards the eventual founding of the Federation, whether the Vulcans like it or not. And Matthew, I think maybe Susie Plaxen might not like it either, So let's uh, just maybe jump in to this episode and the uh, kind of continuation of what we got in Shadows of Pajim Mm -hmm. and the conflict between the Vulcans and the Andorians in particular, but then the humans thrown into the mix here to kind of mediate, which is a really interesting way to set up the founding of the Federation not that these three species somehow met and came together and thought, hey, it'd be great if we, you know, kind of formed this group together. But instead, two of them were in conflict with each other. And mm-hmm. humans who have spent centuries in conflict with themselves somehow become mediators. So uh, that story moves forward here in season two. Yeah, I think one of the things that really stands out about this episode is obviously picking up where they left off with this story, which is great. Um, and, and it really adds great continuity to the story itself, which is really what you I think you want. Um, you do want these type of things to be happening in Enterprise and you clearly see that they obviously learn the lesson from Deep Space Nine on how to you know, create these threaded 
storylines. Um, Even got a but, couple you know, of Vorda in this one. Yes, yeah, there you go. But I, I think one of the things that made this really great was exactly what you were talking about, which is that we're putting humans into the larger story of the universe now. And, you know, Archer and his desire to make humans more important in the galaxy than just people who are kind of going out there exploring and trying to start trouble and make them a player in the galaxy in the sense of, well, why don't we help do something important like broker peace between two warring factions? And, you know, what's so interesting is the way in which Star Trek itself is is kind of based off of the liberal democracy of the United States and the way that it works. And you see here, very reminiscent of kind of a Kirk-like way, of Archer being somebody who's like, you know what, maybe, maybe we can help mediate two major powers' problems so we can create lasting peace and make things better for everyone involved in this part of the galaxy. And so I, I just, I one, I love the ambition that we see here in Archer, but two, I just love what it does for the storytelling. Like you said, yeah, we're, we're beginning to take those steps towards a proto-federation, which is also very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the mediation thing is what Star Trek evolves into when you get to the next generation, where the job of the Enterprise is largely to go around the galaxy and mediate things for people or help out in some way, right? Compared yes. with Kirk's era, where it was more about exploration. And then, of course, Enterprise is about just finding your feet. But the other thing here that I think stands out about this story uh, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I went back to watch this episode. Most episodes I remember very clearly. This episode, I went back to rewatch it and realized that the story, I didn't remember the story as well as I typically do. And what stood out to me is having it here in the, well, it's not even the middle now. This is episode 15. So we're we're uh, pushing into the third third of season two, but revisiting this story really helps establish the idea that they are going to move forward in this series with the founding of the Federation, and they are going to continue to talk about how these three key species come together. And to really base that on the relationships of some pivotal people. And we talked about this, maybe it was all the way back in season one, but I remember that we talked about how they positioned T'Pol and Archer and Shran as being three very important people in the ultimate founding of the Federation and how these people, being from different cultures and cultures that have differences with one another, but these people can find a way to respect each other and build relationships with one another that ultimately allows all the sides to come together. And I think you mentioned DS9 a moment ago, and 
again, Enterprise does learn a lot from DS9. And I think that one of the things that it learns that's so important is what you and I say so often, character first, right? Plot can come later, but characters are really what needs to drive a story. And that's very much what they're doing here. And then specific to Shran, the fact that Shran has this faith in Archer, and he believes that Archer is going to be able to assist him, and he stands up for Archer even when Tara, Susie Plaxton's character, just wants to have the conflict with the Vulcans, take the planet, and doesn't want the humans involved at all. And so that's where you get the rifts within the Andorians, but... Uh, very important. I think showing Shran as a visionary compared with the the rest of the Andorian characters that we're seeing so far. Yeah, I mean, what I was just thinking as you're talking, like you rightly point out the the three kind of main characters that are bringing this together, and I love that. You know, we even have a conversation between Saval and to Paul about the idea of maybe she's been with humanity too long. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is that I think by the end of the episode, Saval has actually learned something from to Paul by the way in which, you know, he does take the drink. And I think what he's seen is that, and I, and in all honesty, I think he was also very, uh, he took to heart what Archer said about the Andorians being willing to be flexible and the, of course, uh, the Vulcans being completely inflexible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I, what I really love is that we're already challenging our preconceptions about these races in these first two seasons. And I think also they continue to do a great job of not only setting up how these characters are going to be important to the building of the Federation, but I think we're still continuing to do a great job of showing that there is something about the Vulcans that isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. And there is something uh, to which, their interactions with humans here in space are leading them in a direction to which, yeah, we're going to need that reformation. And and to me, this is just a great stepping stone for that because, too, what it does is it helps put Saval in Archer's debt, mm-hmm. which is also interesting, which I don't think he would ever have expected to be in, right? So we're doing all of these maneuverings with with these characters and, and the way their relationships are forming and uh, what it's saying about their their specific races as well. And and to me, just re-watching this episode, I was just enjoying so much how much we're building from, which we already did in season one, but knowing then what we're building to makes that all the more exciting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, if we're thinking of watching this for the first time and we don't know what we're building to, I I think that there is some nuance there maybe that obviously you wouldn't pick up on. But 
But I still think that the story works very well in a first viewing, if you go back to when this first aired, because they are very clearly building their relationships and we just don't yet fully know where they're going to go. Although, as a Star Trek fan, as a longtime Star Trek fan, when this series first aired, you did get the feeling like, okay, we're bringing together the pieces. How are they going to come together? And so it was fine to watch them start to unfold. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned about Saval, yeah, at the beginning, he doesn't want Archer there, right? He still has this very much like looking down, I would say, on humans mm-hmm. a bit, like the same feeling that we got at the beginning of the series and knowing where it goes and knowing how Saval evolves as a character in his relationship with Archer evolves, you can really appreciate the turning point in this episode. And Saval, how did you feel? Again, I know we try not to talk too far ahead here as we're doing the rewatch, but Gary Graham's portrayal of Saval in this episode, especially as the episode unfolds, not so much the very opening scenes, do do you feel it was a little bit, uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, just didn't quite feel like Saval to me and some of the, the things that he said, some of the interactions, and maybe some of the interactions with T'Pol, I guess because I feel like I'm thinking of the Saval as a fully fleshed out character that we get by the end of the series, and how his time on Earth influenced him, kind of in the same way mm-hmm. that it influenced Sarek's thinking. And I feel like that doesn't quite come through here, and then it shifts later on. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I really got from his performance here was his uneasiness with the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I feel like in many ways, what he what you're maybe responding to is the way in which I think he's portraying him as being out of his element. Okay. Like none of mm-hmm. this is normal for him and yeah. in the way that he's used to doing business. And so I I I feel like Gary Graham is is actually playing that pretty well for what the character is going through because none of this is what he would do, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it, none of this is what would be prescribed by the high command um or anything that he's experienced in all of his years. You know, of course, we learned Saval was actually here as an intelligence officer all those mm-hmm. years ago when, you know, this treaty was, quote unquote, signed, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when the, basically the Vulcans forced this on the Andorians. And so I, I think I really like that because you do get a sense by the end of this episode that there is a little bit more consistency in the character there's just just like there's this slightest hint that you get that there's something about this character that has changed and part of that of course i think comes at the very end of the episode where he you know he tells archer you know you have not been overly meddlesome here and and that lets you know there's something in this character that's changing and it's a bit like what happened with to Mm-hmm. It happened more quickly with T'Pol because they spent a lot more time together a lot more quickly. You know, Saval, though, here, I think, is slowly being impressed by Archer in a way that, even with all his time on Earth and everything, 
another human hasn't impressed him. And I think that's one of the ways in which the show subtly shows us how important Archer is to this process, him as a person, being who he is, upholding the best values of of who we are as humanity, are slowly actually winning people over. And that's, you know, I think really impressive. So so what you're saying is that Saval is the Vulcan Shania Twain? I think so. Because humans don't impress him much. Oh, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, ooh, I didn't know where that was going, but uh, yeah. Well, that's a good way to look at Saval's portrayal in this episode. And him coming around, I guess, to viewing Archer in a sense, in the same way that Shran views Archer, except Shran, I think, got there a lot more easily, maybe because, as you've talked about before, the temperament of humans and Andorians is more similar, mm-hmm. and right. maybe that allows uh, Shran and Archer to bridge the gap more quickly than Saval and Archer, but ultimately, it's all key. You mentioned something else to me, and you touched on it earlier just a little bit, but you mentioned before we recorded that the whole plot of this episode mirrors your favorite Star Trek film quite a bit. Yeah, it does. You know, um, I was realizing how much of this episode feels a lot like the undiscovered country. You know, um, we, we have warring factions, you know, we have a Starfleet uh, crew that's responsible for taking somebody important to a rendezvous point. They get sabotaged, and we find out that it's actually, you know, one of the people we thought they could trust. There isn't the collusion between both sides, because that would have obviously gone too far, and I think people would have rightly decried the episode for for just copying. But there is a little bit of collusion in there, because you have the deception with Valeris and the uh, Starfleet plot to actually assassinate Gorgon. This is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah, but thankfully that we don't quite get that here in in this episode, which is, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, but I I think what is great, though, about this is, you know, they did take something that was tried, tested, and true, and they were able to formulate it really well for this episode so that it doesn't feel just as though you know you're straight up copying or anything and it just creates i think a really good episode because you know Star Trek 6 is a very good political thriller in many ways and that's that's kind of what this episode is and i do think that the beauty of this episode as well is that it hits very much home the idea that there are those on each side who are going to feel that the other side could never be trusted and that there should never Mm -hmm. be really any change. You know, hostilities Mm -hmm. should always be the same uh, as they are. I think, uh, you know, we not only see that um, with Tara, we also see this with Talev as well, you know, the, the other Vulcan, where, I mean, they both are much keener on having these hostilities continue um, than what we see, uh, you know, Shran uh, and, you know, what we see even in Saval by the end. And 
I, I like that, you know, because I think that that's so very true to our world. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it, 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 it shows that there are people who are willing to push things to extremes, even when peace is an option and how dangerous that is. And, and partly because, you know, sometimes that's all people know. Uh, is those hostilities, that hate, that war. And so uh, I thought that that was something that was really well done in the episode. Mm-hmm. And that's like Star Trek Six as well, right? This like fear of change, fear yes, of, exactly. of stepping out of the uh, situation that you've always known. And here, when you what you see with Tara is... It is that belief that, well, this world is ours and we should keep it and take it. But I think it also is that she knows conflict with the Vulcans. can't imagine it being any other way. And like you said, in our own world, you see that in so many areas, not necessarily only in armed conflicts, although you see it there for sure, but in many other areas, people are comfortable with what they know and it's hard to make a change and and have it stick and then step into a, a new world or a new way of doing things. And so that conflict is certainly there. And in universe here, of course, it's far more interesting to tell the story of how the Federation came together if you have disagreement within a single side, like you have here within the Andorians in particular, and you need to overcome that as opposed to just having each side be like, like is so often in the case in Star Trek where a given planet, a given species are pretty uniform in how they think, right? We have a lot of monoliths that you deal with and DS9 effectively broke out of that with the Cardassians mm-hmm. and of course with the Bajorans and even with the Klingons over time and you see that being an initial part of the writing here with yeah. the Andorians and the Vulcans, uh, two species that, two races that we really didn't know much about going into Enterprise, despite the fact that the Vulcans are probably the Vulcans and Klingons, probably the two alien races in Star Trek that everybody can just instantly name, even if they're not a Star Trek fan, right? But yet we didn't know much about them. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that they're being fleshed out in this series after Star Trek had matured to the point where the writers could just hit the ground running with that kind of diversity of, of uh, thought within uh, society. You know, yeah, absolutely. And one other thing that I was really impressed with with this episode was, you know, we talked about how this, this, you know, we're we're seeing a lot of growth in in characters like Archer and T'Pol and Saval in this episode. But I think this episode also highlights very much just how much Trip has learned. Uh, oh and, yeah, yeah. You know the the seasons that uh, that we've been in now. You know we're almost I guess a little halfway through uh, season two at this point, and the way that he handles this situation is so resolute, um, and so 
beautiful. The idea of, you know, putting yourselves in the middle of this and making the basically calling their bluff. Do you really want to mm-hmm. start an all out war here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he plays an incredible game of chess in the middle of space with these guys. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was just really impressed with the way that he decided to handle this. And I think he very much earned the respect of, of Malcolm in this episode. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and just, I think everybody involved, you know, a lot of times we've seen trip kind of be trigger happy. And here he was just so stalwart in his belief that we are not going to let them start basically world war three in space. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really impressed by that. Or the, I guess for World War Four, since we already had World War Three and Star mm-hmm. Trek's timeline. But yeah, I wanted to mention Trip too because exactly what you're describing, what it reminded me of is Scotty on the original series when Scotty would have the bridge, and Scotty was suspicious in situations. He was cautious. He was uh, resolute. He made good decisions for the ship and just seeing i felt like seeing trip standing there on the bridge as the chief engineer but the person who is left in charge at the moment was like an homage to james Dewan and scotty yeah no i i 100% agree with you um i wish and this is one of the things you know i, I think as we're watching the newer shows uh, you know i was thinking as you were talking how Strange New Worlds has been doing a great job of of really kind of making most of the characters a, a little bit uh, deeper uh, by giving mm-hmm. them their own storylines. And, you know, it, it's one of those things. It, and it is, a, it, it is an interesting choice, obviously, to, you know, for Enterprise to choose to have Trip, the engineer, be that third main character basically on the show mm-hmm. is kind of a fascinating thing because it's it, it it's also not something that we had seen before really mm-hmm. um you know in that way where you're you like you're really going to that character but it also when i think about the logic of it it's like well this is the first warp five ship he's one of the most important people yeah. in this crew um and so to have him be such a main focus makes sense but and in all honesty i think connor trenier just he proved himself to be, you know, so amiable yeah, and, yeah. you know, so likable. And he's so charismatic that, you know, writers respond to people in different ways. And I think they just responded by, like, no, we're, we're going to continue to write stories for this guy because it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, Connor kind of made himself part of that triumvirate there, the way you had... Kirk Spock bones in the original mm-hmm. series. And here I'm trying to think like who would be the other person. So Archer and T'Pol, obviously, but then who would be the third person if it weren't Trip? And because you have very young people, Hoshi and Travis Young, uh, the doctor, of course, Bones was the doctor on the original series and having him be part of that you might think, well, it could be the same thing. You could have Flocks in there. But I don't know. Like the setting here, Flocks is, feels like an outsider to everything else that's going on, and but, but wiser. And the setting of Sickabay at this point in Star Trek 
you know, sick bay had become its own kind of world, I feel, uh, for a ship like this. So probably not him. And then Malcolm, just the nature of the character doesn't feel like he would be in the middle of everything like that. Uh, so it seems natural for it to be Trip. But beyond that, I think Connor's performance definitely elevated him to that role. And also, if you're telling the story of humans and Vulcans, it makes sense to have two humans and then to Paul is the Vulcan, but to have those two humans have very different experiences and personalities and temperaments. And when we get to first flight, when we learn more about the history between Archer and Trip, then it makes even more sense why they would be the three and why Archer yep. and Trip would have that that tie that would make Trip be the other person right up there at the like as the the uh, yep. headline of the show and the crew. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it is just one of the things that really stood out to me in the episode is just how well I think he did in this episode. And I, I really appreciated that they, they, they wrote it in such a way that just, I felt like really fit with a lot of the growth that we've been seeing for the character uh, throughout all of these episodes, especially in season two, where, you know, I, I think they've put you know, trip kind of through the ringer and some of the things he's had to experience, you know, when you think mm-hmm. of Dawn and others where he's had to really be outside his comfort zone. And, and I think this is one of the, the episodes that really puts that character to the test in one of the most volatile situations possible. And I think he handles it with such poise, even just the way they have him just kind of sitting there is the the Andorian and the Vulcan are bickering back and forth mm-hmm. and he doesn't say anything. And then he, you know, just he calmly lets them know, look, you're, if you're going to start a shooting war here, you're doing it through us. Uh, and so do you really want to start a war? I don't know. It's up to you. So let's talk about Susie Plaxon for a moment because she turns up in Star Trek again. And what do you think about her? So, Jeffrey Combs, we always talk about Jeffrey Combs and how he can transform himself into different characters in Star Trek. But I think Susie Plaxon does this really well also. Of course, she was a Vulcan, Dr. Salar on the Schizoid Man on TNG, and then Worf's mate, Kalar, in the Emissary Reunion. And then she had that great role as the female Q in the Q and the Grey. And now she's an Andorian. I mean, how do you feel about her transforming herself as all of these characters? I, you know, I've always enjoyed her in Star Trek. I think she's fantastic. She's just a wonderful character actor. And like you said, you know, she is able, like so many of these uh, actors that they have on Star Trek, if you're back in, in these different roles, it's because you're good at it. Um, and you're good at able to be able to kind of put yourself and mold yourself into these different characters, which I think is fantastic. And she's great in this episode. She's so fun to watch. And um, I think she does a great job of just portraying a character who, you know, you kind of possibly feel off a little bit in the sense that like you kind of maybe think that something's not going great. 
with her and that she might be a little bit nefarious, but she just does a really good job at it. And I think she plays really well off of Jeffrey Combs in the episode, which is very important. Mm -hmm. And you get the sense like, you know, they've been in the trenches for a long time together and her betrayal of him is very painful, you know? And so I just, I really liked her performance here. And, you know, also too, I mean, I think it helps that not, you know, Susie Plaxton is a tall woman. She, I think she's probably the same height as Scott Bakula, but they have her in heels, so she it makes her an even more imposing presence, uh, which is really important too. Because you know when she's literally looking down at Shran and scenes, and th- I think that helps even just the visual language of her looking down at him is she's looking down at him in the sense that she's not agreeing with him, mm-hmm. and um, she feels that he is you know betraying uh, the Andorian people. Uh, and so I, yeah, I really, I, 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 just a great performance all around. I think she would have made a good Vorta on DS9 also. Yes, uh, she absolutely would have. Yeah. I think she could have played that superbly, but, and, and to all of that, she's just a good actress and she, fills every role that they ask her to in Star Trek, I think, pretty perfectly. Mm-hmm. And also, I like that the characters that she has played, various aliens, including Klingon, but often you have actors who do come back to Star Trek very often, but the prosthetics are so heavy, you don't necessarily recognize immediately who the actor is. But in her case, the prosthetics have always been light enough that's very obviously Susie Plaxon, or in the case of the Q, it's it's just her. And her ability to bring to life very different characters, despite you watching and knowing, yeah, okay, it's Susie Plaxon, I think is very impressive as well. All right, well, we've uh, pretty much gone through the story, so what are your final thoughts and what's your rating on this one? In all honesty, I, I just think this is a fantastic episode uh, from start to finish. Uh, there's very little about it. I don't know if there's anything about it that I would change other than, you know, as you watch these old uh, VFX, uh, they're not mm-hmm. as good as they could be. But but they were really good at the expensive. time that they were yeah. made, yeah. I think. Yeah. And so, all in all, to me, this is, this is a five-star episode. I mean, just one of the best episodes we've had of season two i love the way that it builds off of everything that we've been doing with the andorians and the vulcans and the humans to this point Uh, i think it's got great character moments for some of the most important characters in the series what's interesting is like deep space nine enterprise has created these recurring characters like saval and shran who you kind of think of as being there more than they actually are because they have such pivotal roles in the series. So, 100% love this episode. Chris, where are you landing on Ceasefire? Yeah, like I said earlier, when I went back and rewatched it, I realized that I didn't remember the details of the story as well as I typically do. And that was kind of fun because... That doesn't happen very often for me in Star Trek. And it was fun to watch the story play out and really appreciate how they were 
putting this building block in place for the bigger story. And of course, the performances, as we've discussed, were excellent. And I think it's just a really strong episode here in a bit more than halfway through season two. And I kind of imagine where it could have been leading if the Zindi storyline hadn't come about. Now, of course, the character building, the relationship building here is important for that. But if you think ahead to the founding of the Federation part of Enterprise, I feel like this was sort of leading us to that. And then we took a detour. And then we came back to it a little bit later. So it's interesting to think about that as you're watching. But I think it was a really great story. And I'm going to give it eight flags of truth. Nice. All right, everyone, we would love to hear your thoughts on Ceasefire. There are many ways for you to share those with us. Perhaps the best way is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That is our listeners group. If you're already a member, you know how it works. But if not, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come up. If not, just type the whole name, the Babel Conference. It is a closed group. It's meant to extend the conversation beyond the podcast. So it's there for listeners. So please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum if you're joining for the first time so that I can let you in. And you'll see a post there on the timeline for this episode, and you can share your comments with Matthew and me and fellow listeners right there. You can also send us email. Go to our website, trek.fm slash contact. Use the form you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to Matthew and me by email. And of course, you can find us in social media everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, Everywhere our username is Trek FM. Now, Matthew, when you're not being fixated on Vulcan ears, where can people find you? Well, uh, they can find me all over the place, Chris, on social media under the name Matt Rushing02, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, most active in those places. Of course, here on the network, you can find me in the 602 Club as we dive into all of the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek. That's a real blast, so I hope you will check that out. Uh, and of course, you can also find me doing literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Chris, you and I talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine on the Orb, as well as Strange New Worlds on Saddle Up. And for Star Trek Picard, we're doing the Artificial Tango. And then last but not least, you'll find me over on the Nerd Party Network talking about a few different things. One is Harry Potter. Did a show with Dre Kaufman where we talked about every single chapter of that series, one chapter at a time. And then the great John Mills and I are doing Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast. But Chris, you know, when you're not trying to figure out how to get into that Andorian leather, where can people find you? <laughs> it is a little bit tight. Uh, yes. Been, yes, it is. I've been practicing. You actually have to practice <laughs> to get into that Andorian leather. And uh, it helps if you have a little Andorian L beforehand, I have to say. I, I've heard that. I've heard that. <laughs> When I am not doing that, you can find me, as you mentioned, on the network here doing all of those shows with you. Larry Nemechek and I do The Ready Room from time to time, and you can find me in many episodes of many shows in the back catalog. And you can find me online uh, talking about various things on Twitter. 
If you'd like to chat, I'd love to hear from you there. My username on Twitter and everywhere in social media is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username everywhere, but Twitter is where I'm most active. So hit me up there if you want to talk about Star Trek or college football or Japan or anything like that. Would love to hear from you. One more thing we'd like to ask, if your podcast app of choice allows you to leave a rating and a review, we'd love to get that from you as well. Find out what you think about the show and help others learn about the show and see if they'd like to give us a listen. And if you'd like to help us keep those shows going, help us keep the network running, we would really appreciate your help. If you'd like to find out how to get involved, how to help us, please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. It takes a great deal of money to operate this network, and we really wouldn't be here without all of you. So thank you so much to everyone who's supporting us. And if you're not, we really hope that you will get involved. Well, Matthew, I'm glad that we survived the whole adventure here with Ceasefire because it was a little bit scary at times there, but uh, we survived, but we'll live on for a little bit of uh, temporal hijinks, let's say, next time when we talk about future tense. Well, Chris, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little future tense, so let's go. 